This is UCD Business Impact. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now we're over eight months into this most peculiar epoch. Are you finding the workspace a little cramped at this stage? After several months, is the initial novelty of WFH, as it's become known, starting to wear off? Are you being asked to do long grinding hours? And I get a sense a lot of people are being asked to take on a lot of unfamiliar projects. Are you having your hours reduced, your pay cut? All of these things have come along at the tidal wave of change. That is the COVID crisis. It's really been, I think, head spinning for everyone. And it means that relations with employers, teammates, even family have become a little tense recently, maybe a little charged. So how do we mediate these relationships? How do we negotiate over crucial issues, whether it's as an employee, a consumer, or as a team member in a workplace or office setting? And arguably in a crisis, of course, negotiation becomes even more crucial. But can you be good at negotiation? Is there an actual art to it at all or a knack to it? I'm just thinking of Brexit and maybe we shouldn't think about it as we head towards the end of December, but all this terminology surrounding Brexit, we hear about the red lines, entering the tunnel, which is the most surreal of all, and of course, landing zones where agreements can be found between two sides. Well, today's podcast is going to try and find out a little bit about some of these terms and talk a little bit about negotiation in more general. And my guest is Dr. Virginia Stewart, who's a lecturer in organizational behavior at the Smurfit Business School, and she teaches directly in the area of negotiation. She also sets a little bit of a record today because I think she's the first Texan we've ever had on this podcast. So Virginia, you're very, very welcome along to Business Impact. The art of negotiation, and even the fact that we use this word art, to me is kind of revealing in itself. It sounds like it's a skill, you know, getting good Mm -hmm. at playing tennis or soccer or something in the park over the years. And I don't know whether you agree whether that does it a, a disservice or not, but can you develop the skill of negotiation over the years? Absolutely. Um, so there's two ways to look at it. One is expertise. So reading books, knowing your subject area, and then the other is experience, which is the practice. And you really need both. Uh, we have some very experienced negotiators uh, who just do this full time, but they haven't stopped back to reflect or to uh, perhaps maybe educate themselves about the theories and the research. So at least at Smurfit, we try to put these two pieces together. Uh, and what I tell my students is that there are really three critical skills uh, to um, making anyone uh, uh, a more effective negotiator. And one is expanding your mindset to uh, think that almost anything is negotiable. Not that you should, but to be open-minded uh, and not just feel that uh, you need to accommodate or always split the difference or compromise, but negotiation is a, is a viable option. Um, the second skill is being prepared. Uh, the research shows and my students will attest, the more prepared you are, the more effective you'll be. Uh, so don't negotiate on the cuff. Do your research carefully. Know your value, what your options are, uh, what your walkaway point is. Uh, and sometimes the hardest question uh, for, for people to answer is, what do you actually hope to obtain from this negotiation? Can you describe that specifically? Uh, and then we call that your aspiration target. Um, the other thing is listening, the third skill. Uh, we can all work on being better listeners. And the listening in the negotiation process helps create value. 
and uh, find zones of agreement. So listening, preparing, and of course, expanding your mindset to view lots of opportunities uh, as negotiation opportunities and not just take the status quo. And, and over the years in Ireland, at least, uh, and it's obviously very situational, the, the position in Ireland, but you know, there's generally been an approach in negotiation that you know, I want a 12% pay rise, you're only prepared to give me six and we meet in the middle somewhere. And that's just generally kind of almost a template for a negotiation and the meet in the middle kind of theory. Is that split that, the difference? Yeah, split the difference. Yeah. I mean, is that still the kind of primary template in negotiation or is that kind of something people say but don't really actually apply when they get into the room with somebody else? I think that's in the back of our mind as a fair outcome, but it may not be the optimal outcome. So, and some things can't be split. Uh, for example, very fancy coffee machine arrives in the office and I want it near me because I meet with clients and you want it near you because that's where the staff meetings are, for example. We can't cut it in half and putting it in the stairwell really isn't helpful to anyone. You <laughs> can't even plug it in. So even though it may be psychologically satisfying to split the difference, no one's happy, right? Uh, so negotiation is much more about the process of exchanging information. And, you know, I give up something, you give up something, but in the end, we're both uh, better off. So the splitting the difference is something we have to fight, I think, psychologically as a fairness approach. And you don't actually know what the difference is often. Um, so for example, in a salary negotiation, like, like you were saying, maybe there's actually 18% available. Like we don't know that, right? And then you're getting half of 12. Um, so these conversations, I, I, I totally understand the desire to, to, to share. And I think, I don't know in Ireland if parents do this, but in the States, if they're splitting a cookie and there's two halves, you know, one person splits it and the other, the other person gets to choose the half. And the correct thing to do is obviously to choose the the small or the equal one, but we don't, we don't start off like this. Uh, you know, generally as children and younger human beings, we take as much as we can. And then through education, we learn that you're only supposed to take your, your fair share. And in some ways, negotiation is teaching people to let go of that and try to find bigger cookies, uh, more boxes, uh, <laughs> finding out the type of cookie someone actually likes. So, um, splitting the difference is a shortcut. Uh, sometimes, it, you know, everyone's happy with it, but very often it won't lead to uh, maximizing the gains from that conversation. Um, obviously, the office is one particular environment. Uh, mm. I know from your own family background, you, you know about the world of diplomacy and you had a um, career experience of that for our listeners benefit you once worked in counterterrorism work um, before you moved into academia, which sounds very interesting. <laughs> it does sound different, yeah. <laughs> than um, it yeah is. Perfect preparation for, uh, for academia, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But in, in terms of kind of the kind of different contexts, when we look at statecraft or international relations, we talk about these red lines, you know, there's a certain portion of the discussion that one government just cannot go past. We just cannot countenance this particular issue. How do people look at those red lines? I mean, how do they formulate them? And is it just kind of simply kind of saying to yourself, what can I, what's the most absolute maximum pain I could actually take on this and still come out of the room reasonably happy? Is that, is that what a red line is to you? Well, when I hear the term red line, uh, it just makes my heart beat faster and in a bad way because it's telling me that it's like a red flag to a, a bull, right? It tells me that someone doesn't want to negotiate right? That this is an area that they've deemed unacceptable. And if you're saying it publicly, 
it means you have to stick to it or lose face. So you're backing yourself into a corner. And I think everyone needs wiggle room to maybe change their mind if needed or obtain more information. It's much more important to say that this is a vital issue. It's really important. If I make any concession on it whatsoever, something you need to give up something that big too. And now we're negotiating. You know, we're, we're saying this is really important to me. What's really important to you? Uh, and we can maybe find a zone of agreement. I think in the papers uh, in the past couple of months, there's been a lot uh, related to Brexit about fishing access for EU vessels. And I don't understand the details. I was about to say, um, I, bet you, I bet you didn't think you'd need to know about that before you moved from the States to Ireland. Yeah? <laughs> well, from what I gather as an interested reader, um, you know, this has been indicated as, as an area of non-negotiation. Um, but what you can also do is come up with a contingency contract. You can say, look, you know, EU vessels fishing access uh, in British waters is not automatic if stock is depleted. So there's an if and a then, or if, you know, the, the revenues are, you know, precarious, then, you know, this access is cut off. If then, if then, if then. And I'm not proposing something that others haven't thought of before, but I'm just pointing out, if you say it's a red line area zone, you don't even have these conversations. So, so you don't want someone coming to the room that takes whole range of issues off the table and says they are no. in a separate box and we can never go there. It, it just confines and narrows the, the conversation. Right. And the art of negotiation is sometimes creating packages of issues that are not really related, but are more important to your counterpart and less important to you. And that's how you create value. You're giving away things that don't matter as much to you and they're doing the same and you're the, getting what you actually want. The, the other difficulty I, I presume in negotiation is the past and the present. So yeah. an awful lot of negotiation, we know this in this particular island where history runs for hundreds of years back into our relationships with the country um, to the east of us. Um, I mean, in terms of trying to sort of start a negotiation, how do you stop people bringing stuff in from the past? This happened to me, this wasn't recognized. I gave up you know, productivity in mm. five years ago. I, I swallowed a pay cut five years ago. I now want that to be retrospectively restored. How do you make a negotiation kind of stand on its own merits without bringing all the baggage from the past in? Or do you actually go the other way and say, let's put it all on the table, let's look back, let's throw it all out there and navigate through all these different sort of hotspots? I mean, that seems to be a real problem is where does the negotiation start from? Where is the mm. kind of opening chapter? And maybe the two sides can't even agree on that much. It can get messy. Absolutely. When you're preparing for your negotiation, it's really important to focus on, for example, what your top three or four priorities are, you know, and, and really what is the background that will support your case? Uh, and it, you don't have to throw everything, <laughs> everything in there at once. Um, if you're in an emotional frame of mind, it's probably not the best time to negotiate if there's you know historic resentment or feeling you've been passed over um, but you really do need to think about what it is you want out of this situation and if it really is more money that's maybe you know a frequent uh, a need a human need to survive in expensive ireland you need to think about your alternatives to this negotiation be, being successful also we do spend a lot of time um, on the topic of salary it's your responsibility to explain to someone else uh, what 
the salary norm is for that job, what your value is, um, just to expect somebody to recognize your efforts and reward you accordingly is frankly naive. So I, you know, it's it's a two-person situation. It's not it's not just the organization giving; it's the uh, employees also demonstrating their value. And I think for me personally, the the the, the best thing that you can do is uh, strengthen your alternatives, and that will give you confidence um, if you know you know what the value of your skills are on the open market. So of course, right now is a bad time to be looking for no, a job, yeah, right? You might want to wait six or nine months before you charge in there. Um, I know a particular individual who asked for a pay rise and they did not get it. And I don't know what the standard of negotiation was, but they started piling up all their possessions in their office in a box. And then they packed up another box and then another box. And they could see their boss looking at them through the window of their office. And another box got packed and they carried them out to the back of their um, car and they pulled and that was that the gun and they said i'm about to go and just as they were about to turn the ignition mm. or the key in the ignition their boss ran out and said okay 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 let's talk with this five percent that you brought up uh, two weeks ago you know, it so how, like, how close to the edge do you have to go yeah. with like a lot of our, our listeners well, it sounded like it wasn't a threat he was he had his alter i know but what was the alternative in that situation well i think he was trying was to there go another job yeah I think, I think he was he was going to trust his ability to land another job yeah. but the, the thing about the company was Virtually every pay negotiation ended that way, where it was right to the brink every single time. It was it. difficult. It was right to the edge. Red lines everywhere, etc. Uh, you know, so that's unfortunate that some employees have to go right. It's a very stressful negotiation every three or four years. Well, in academia, I, it's often the same. You'll see someone go out and get a job offer from another institution and then bring it back to see if they'll match it because mm. it's very difficult uh, you know, with the pay scales and things like that, they don't really do promotions except for once or twice in your career. The problem is if, you know, the school says, no, I'm sorry, we can't match that and good luck. <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't make a threat. It's a gamble, right? I wouldn't gamble unless you're very satisfied that your alternative uh, is, is, is useful. But um, for people like myself who are, we call it equity sensitive, you know, we, we take fairness seriously, and if we feel we're not getting our half of the cookie, or even worse, the distribution of chocolate chips in the cookie is not even. <laughs> You're going down can, a few layers here, yeah. <laughs> it, can, it, can, it can be difficult uh, to, to accept unfairness, but in a negotiation class or you know, through education and conversations, try to just expand the issues. You know, maybe they can't pay you more, but uh, the, you, know, you work less hours, so the end result is basically your hourly rate has gone up or there's something you would like to be trained in or you want to switch to a different office or uh, freedom days, you know, to, to pursue your own projects. So there's a vividness bias where we get fixated on a salary number and we almost become irrational around our desire to achieve this one objective, like tunnel vision. Uh, so take a step back and think what else, and if it is a financial pinch, maybe you can decrease the expenses from other areas through negotiating down your, I just did this, my, my energy bill, you know, the annual increase of 25%. I was like, right, that's not acceptable. All the other you know, suppliers are providing this amount. I can switch in four clicks on, what is it? Bonkers.ie. And they're like, no, yeah. no, no, you can keep your rate. So yeah. Anyway. So you, yeah. I'm getting I was, passionate about I was these about things. to say, you are the worst nightmare of any energy company in this I am country. Not. Somebody who's a professional uh, academic I'm in not. the art of negotiation. It's it's like <laughs> customer from hell time. But I, I went well, on to you. It's, it's to be encouraged. Did isn't you it? say? 
<laughs> you, people who know those things. <laughs> there's this acceptance of, you know, like I find it unfair behavior. You know, it's not fair. I have been a loyal customer. I have paid consistently for 12 months, you know, cumulatively probably thousands of euros. Why should I pay a quarter more? Because you assume I'm too lazy to switch. It just, it really irritates me. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we've become very slow and lazy with our yeah. customer relationship. We just don't invest the time in them. I think that's that's one of the issues we have. And then we, we still we, we still retain the right to complain, even though we've done nothing about uh, resetting that relationship at all. The other reason I think this is so important is um, if it's the 1920s or 30s, we're all working in factories. We're probably going to be industrial workers. A lot of women are going to be at home. are mm-hmm. not going to be in the workplace at all. And a lot of it was union, you know, union rates, you know, and in the public service, as you've mentioned yourself, it's grades, you know, you, you're allocated a grade. If you're, if the university sector changed the grades, yes, you go up by an incremental amount, etc. So that's all changed, though, in the private sector in Ireland now, where mm-hmm. union membership is on a seriously rapid decline. So a lot of people are now are negotiating their pay and wider than that. You've mentioned offices and what mm-hmm. they do on the team and work allocations. They're negotiating these things just on their own. They may not have anyone else in the room. So it is, it is extraordinary that we haven't paid more attention to giving people these skills from a time in the 1920s where they didn't need them because the unions just got around a big table with management yeah. and the two sides of labor, you know, parsed it all out, ladled it all out. So it is strange that there must be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of workers in Ireland and elsewhere that have to probably not annually, but certainly every two or three Absolutely. years reset that whole relationship that nobody does any classes, skill development, yeah. continuing professional in this area. Yeah. I mean, it, but there's, are we a, just... there's a conflict of interest. I mean, as an employer, would you train your employees to engage in <laughs> no. salary negotiations? <laughs> would you send them off for a certificate? No, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So, so where do we get this education? And, you know, I remember having, female friends in college that were just so, I thought, courageous and bold. You know, they would go to the front of the line if, uh, you know, outside a pub and say, look, you know, I'm here with my friends, you know, you should let us in first. And I just couldn't believe that they were asking for these things directly and getting them. Um, and so some of this is probably, you know, cultural upbringing, uh, maybe, you know, some gender issues, although we know women are just as effective negotiators. Uh, and particularly ferocious if they're negotiating on behalf of a third party. Um, so, you know, there is this experience effect, uh, this cultural experience. Uh, but with with the learning and the expertise and, you know, just the practice in the classroom, I think we, we can all get there. Um, but whose responsibility is it to provide this education? That's a very good question. Um, well, I suppose it, in the yeah. absence of employers doing it, people will have to take on the role themselves. Um, I don't know where they get it, though, but really it may have yeah. to self-educate. Um, we do have a program in the U.S. run by one of our negotiation uh, gurus, if there's such a thing, uh, at Carnegie Mellon, and she has started uh, training uh, the Girl Scouts, so equivalent of the Girl Guides. They get a badge now for being in negotiation. Okay, well, that's good to see like it. That. So yeah, and well. so other instructors have done the same thing where they're training college students and part of their course is to provide education in, you know, that kind of context because uh, they find it very useful to teach particularly, you know, these these young girls, um, you know, to ask for fair pay in their babysitting, right? <laughs> to, to make... <laughs> that's that's to make early. It is early, um, but stronger negotiation skills are also uh, associated, you know, with many other beneficial outcomes, including satisfaction, you know, with your job and with the process. Um, 
confidence, uh, communication skills. So it's kind of this whole package of, of helpful behaviors. The other people I wanted you, you briefly mentioned there were the third parties, and I mean it in the sense of somebody mediating between yeah. two negotiating parties. Um, you're in big luck because here in Ireland, we all have great reverence for uh, American politician called George Mitchell, who kind of pretty much a democratic um, congressman who pretty much was certainly, you know, largely responsible for bringing the Northern Irish conflict to an end. He wasn't the only one. There was many others, but he certainly was the person who brought the two sides together mm. and help them follow through a kind of process that got them to the Good Friday Agreement. So he's very much kind of valorized here in Ireland for the great work he did. What do you think the role is of that, that sort of mediator, that shuttle diplomat that goes between the two sides? And you can get that in an office setting where you have maybe someone from HR, it could be the yeah. CEO of the company, or as you said earlier, it could be just a, a friend, a mutual friend of the two people. Where do you see or how important is that person? Is it almost better to have that person in there in a lot of cases or does it depend on their own personality? Well, when the two sides hate each other, a mediator is probably a good idea. Um, so the Red Cross has been mediating, I think, Azerbaijan and, uh, help me out, Armenia? Armenia. Yeah, yes. the territorial dispute there. Not sure it's stuck, but uh, yeah, you know, that it is a critical role. But mediation is one of many options. You know, there's also arbitration where you say, I'm going to lay out the facts. You lay out your facts and we're just going to have someone rule. Uh, you know, on right and wrong. You need the right mediator. Uh, ideally, they're, you know, non-biased, you know, in an employee dispute, if, you know, the parties are really close, you know, there's me, maybe you're my manager, and we bring in another manager to mediate. That may actually make me even more uncomfortable because I see two people in authority trying to, you know, maybe <laughs> push things a, a certain way. Um, but from what I understand, the mediation, it doesn't really matter, you know, what the style is or how you set up the process, uh, as long as I trust you and I think you're being fair. So uh, good mediators, you know, also serve as psychologists, you know, they're listening to the grievances from each party, bringing them together. Um, often mediators will be told things in private. You know, I, I could accept this situation. I'd never tell him or her that, but you know, like this would be fine. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an extremely important role uh, and a critical skill. So, you know, I, I think mediation is extremely, I keep saying extremely, but I'm, pro, I'm pro, <laughs> I'm pro mediation, but not to the point where people don't develop their own conflict resolution skills, you know, like, expecting someone to come in and police everything. So actually, I, uh, in one of my classes, we do group negotiations. So teams of three or four against teams of three or four. And I tell them at the beginning, I will not come mediate any disputes on your team because this is what you're learning. Yes. <laughs> so, like, no, no, no. Uh, there is this hope that someone will come in and, you know, just lay down the make law. It and make, make it all good. Make it all go um, away. Make it all go away. And I'm like, no, no, you have, to, you have to, some of these skills you do have to learn yourself, but, uh, you know, clearly there are situations when the sides aren't even at the table yes. <laughs> or weaponized that, yeah, mediation would be, would be uh, advised. The interested third party doesn't have to be a specific mediator, though it can be, you know, just a surrounding community, um, you know, a, a, just a balancing act. I mean, another theory, and I'm sorry for taking so many of them from the political world, but that's just the world I'm, I'm sort of most familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ideas is that both parties have to lose an, a certain amount to get the negotiation to become serious. In other words, in a conflict, say a military conflict, unfortunately, 
you know, a certain amount of death and misery mm. has to be visited upon all people, whereby the two parties eventually say we can't we can't sustain this any longer. This the, the price of this, the cost of this has got so high that we just have to get into a serious negotiation. And that's mm. they certainly the the people who look at a conflict, a military conflict, say, you know, the death count reaches a certain point where both parties just yeah. aren't prepared to accept it anymore. And, and that's possibly one of the reasons the, the northern conflict came to an end and maybe you know, like, I don't want to stretch that out to the Middle East, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, people say they, they, the two sides just haven't lost enough for them to finally sign on to the, the pieces that would bring the two sides together. I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with this, but I like the idea of uh, the theory is neat and tidy in the sense of uh, you can see how it's played out in various places. Do you put any store in that idea that take an office ticket back to yeah. the office where the office there's a bad atmosphere there? As you said, there's two mm-hmm. or three people who just don't get on morale is low and it's only when it gets to a certain point of real discomfort that people say all right let's meet next friday at 11 o'clock in the boardroom and get this done do you think there's anything in that or do you think it's 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 more subtle than that i just don't think i would be more motivated (laughs) if the situation was that toxic i think i would lose motivation throughout this process to engage with the the other party however i might be more open-minded to mediation or or arbitration um, but the chances of us resolving this amicably, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's that's a kind of more of a philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> I think about uh, the effect of hitting rock bottom if it's transformative or if it's just when people give up, you know. Yeah, and walk away. And say then. and walk away and yeah, where does where does as hope decreases, is it realistic to express? Uh, ex- expect that motivation to solve the problem would increase. And I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah. We, were, we were saying to each other and we did a, a preparatory phone call before this podcast. And I think that's always a good thing to do. One of the things you were saying that I found interesting was when we were talking about the Brexit sort of negotiation process, you were saying about the, the landing zone, the, the, the areas of agreement that are there. So, you know, you wonder is the best way to go in there is to start mapping out we all agree on this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece. It's only this 5% over here where there is contention. But I suspect that a lot of the time it goes the other way around and they, they walk into the room and say, we're not accepting this. Yeah, so is, is, is it the way, the ordering of the points of conflict that kind of become important? So I think, I think there's two things here. And one, you don't want to agree on anything until all the issues have been put, placed out there because then it limits your trading. You know, we call it log rolling. You know, you take two of those and I'll take this one and the other one, but you can't, you don't wanna go issue by issue by issue. Will you agree on that? Let's move on. We agree on that, let's move on. We agree on that, let's move on. Um, because there's always room to improve the, the agreements. I tell my students, you know, let's say you have an agreement, uh, you signed it, you have an extra 20 minutes, um, go back through it. You know, where can you create more value without anyone uh, losing value? But you're right. There is a, there is a strategy (laughs) to use an old fashioned (laughs) word. (laughs) Well, Texan, right? A strategy to, to giving things up. So if you are making, we call it a concession. You know, if you're making a concession, first you have to label it. Uh, You have to say, this is really, really important to me. Salary, for example, you know, this, this 5%, the fact that I'm, letting go of this, you know, I'm, I'm labeling it. I'm not just nodding and going back, like, you know, you, you label it. Um, and when you make concessions, you want generally to start with the big ones because it is a sign of goodwill that your counterpart should reciprocate with 
also a big concession. And so then this is kind of how you get the ball rolling. And then work your way down to kind of the smaller details toward, towards the end of the process. Instead of agreeing on small things first and then kind of tiptoeing around the really big issues that might just, you know, cause the negotiation to, to implode. Now, I'm not sure I answered your question, but I did get to talk about concessions and they're ah. one of my favorite things. And I use it at home all the time. You know, like I label if I've given up something that was of value to me. Uh, and in general, what, what happens is that someone appreciates that, acknowledges it, and then uh, is maybe feeling a little bit more obligated to make their own concession. Okay, that was very diplomatically phrased. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose the thing that dawns on me, very hard-nosed economists would say, look, all of this is fine, but ultimately in any sort of allocation of resources or power, somebody is losing somewhere it may not be obvious in the paperwork or you know and they will have the zero sum kind of concept you know you you may dress it up or somebody's walked out of the room thinking they've won but they haven't really when you analyze it i mean yeah. what, what do you say to that because that, that kind of undermines the idea of negotiation you know it's ultimately just allocating precious resources and if somebody can't see that they got less of the biscuit to use your or the cookie, yeah, yeah, my example, or, oh yeah my biscuit not, a, not that, a that, yeah a biscuit <laughs> you're using the language local language here but it's like in other words, somebody has lost. If they can't see that, well, so what? It, it doesn't mean they haven't lost. It's just they can't identify it. I mean, that's so what the economists the, tend to say. I mean, what, The winners and losers. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is also framing. Uh, you should not, if we're going to talk about rational behavior, you should not make an agreement that is worse than your existing situation uh, or worse than your alternatives. So by definition, when you reach an agreement through negotiation that is reasonable or rational, you are better off, even if it's by a penny, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, the, 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 the question is with uh, negotiating is, if there's value that you've created, like who's getting the bigger half? Maybe you only get a quarter of the cookie, right? So you are a loser in some ways, but you're a quarter up <laughs> from where you were before. Uh, and, you know, rationally, you should be happy with that. Now, would you be happy with that? Probably not. Uh, but an economist would say you should be happy with that. Yeah. So oh, a psychologist would say, I completely feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> it's all incremental, I suppose. A little, little, small little it is. gains over the years. Negotiation at the moment is so vital. I mean, we're talking about people really are whose head is spinning at the amount of change coming at them and negotiating and almost kind of trying to put their own shape on that change is really important. I think that's why the skills that you have um, given them the benefit of an insight into today are really, really valuable. And we'll talk to you again in, in 2021, I'm sure, about how it's all going. Thank you so much, Sounds Dr. Good. Virginia Stewart. Thanks for, thanks for having me.